0: We came out of a series entitled Don't Believe It, which focused on things that we believe that are not helpful for us, that cause problems for us, and today's message is entitled Believe It, because fundamentally the Christian faith is an invitation from God to believe, to believe that God is real, to believe that God Is good, that he loves us, that he wants to be in relationship with us, and that the expression of his love and his desire for relationship came through his son Jesus, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. So that's what we're going to focus on today. Why we should believe that. Now, One of the things I love about MBCC is we have all kinds of folks here. We say that everybody matters to God, and so everybody matters to us. It means everybody is welcome. And so I know that in our community, we have folks who are skeptics. We have folks who are seekers. We have folks who have been following Jesus for a long, long time. But the reason why I'm excited for this message today is I think it meets us at a place where we're all in common. Because there are some times for all of us where it is hard to believe the things that God is inviting us to believe. There are times when it is hard to believe that someone rose from the dead. There are times when it is hard to believe that there could could have been a human on earth who is the visible image of the invisible God as it says in Colossians. There can be times in our life when we encounter tragedy or disappointment and it can be hard to believe that God is good or loving or even there in the way that he promises to be there in our lives. Sometimes for all of us, it can be far easier to believe in what we can see and what we can touch and what provides instant gratification for our lives. So today, what I want to talk about is why it is reasonable to to believe and to be someone who follows Jesus. And the big idea, because I really don't want to overpromise, the reality is there are a whole lot of things in this world that no one can prove. No one can prove beyond a shadow of of doubt that God is real. No one can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is real who he says he is. But what I want to get to today is that not only is it reasonable to believe, that it takes as, at least as much faith to not believe as it does to believe. So that's the big idea that we're going to be aiming for today. Now, if I have a concern, the concern is that this is a really big topic. Uh, there's so much more content that can possibly fit in a single message. So I'm going to highlight a couple of areas that, you know, for me, have been a part of my journey of coming to Believe. I think they're areas that a lot of people struggle with or may have a sense of a feeling like, yeah, these are questions that I care about. Um, In the end, if there's anything I talk about today that you want to engage with me directly on, shoot me an email. All of our staff information is on our website. Would love to dialogue about any of this. At the very end, we'll also put up a slide, uh, two books from uh, a pastor in New York that um, I I really appreciate. Some of his work really helped this message. His name is Tim Keller, and he recently wrote two books um, kind of around this topic. So um, hopefully that'll also provide additional resources if you want to go deeper in this. All right, so I invite you to stand for the reading of scripture today. We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 43. And this uh, passage that we're reading is towards the end of Luke, towards the very end of Luke. It comes after Jesus has died on the cross, and the disciples have started to hear accounts from people that have said, that they've, they've seen Jesus alive. And so they don't really know what to make of it. They're talking about it. And then this is where the passage picks up in verse 36. And it says, While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Someone just heard that passage and is thinking, okay, we're going to talk about why Jesus is who he says he is. And this is the passage you chose where Jesus asked for something to eat and they feed him a piece of fish? Really? So believe it or not, this passage actually demonstrates a number of the fundamental characteristics about the New Testament narratives about Jesus that would reinforce their claim that these are reliable, trustworthy accounts of Jesus's life, and they can actually be trusted. And this is one of the major questions that I think is totally legitimate for anyone who's wrestling with God, who's considering Christianity, is how can I know that what the Bible says about Jesus is really true? How can I trust it? These are ancient documents. They've been around, you know, the New Testament has been around for almost 2,000 years, why aren't they just like other ancient documents that I'm familiar with, things like the Aeneid or Aesop's Fables, that are both in the general kind of time frame of when the New Testament was written? You know, how do I know that they weren't written over hundreds of years, that they're really myths and legends, that the church basically added on to whatever they knew about Jesus to, you know, make the church look good, to make Jesus look good, um, so that it would be easier for them to get bigger and bigger? So there are a few ways to answer this question. We'll take a look at some of the characteristics around this passage, Um, things like the dating, the genre, the content, the historical context. But I want to take a look at this question uh, through the lens of the life of one of the more famous 20th century Christians, C.S. Lewis. Now, many of you know who C.S. Lewis is, have heard of him. Uh, he's probably most famous for writing the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, he wrote extensively across his life um, around, about Christianity, probably looks more stereotypically like an English professor than anyone else possible. All right, so what you may not know is that uh, C.S. Lewis was an atheist for most of his late teens and 20s. He adamantly was sure that there was no God. And uh, much of that was because of some of the things that he experienced in his life. Uh, He lost his mother when he was about 10 years old. Uh, When he was in his mid to late late teens, uh, he um, served in World War I, saw the horrors of war firsthand. Uh, So these experiences were a part of what shaped him to be convinced that there's no way that there could be a god. Now, the other thing about C.S. Lewis was he was a literature professor. He specialized, he taught in English literature at Oxford and then later in his life at Cambridge. But he was a he was a lifelong fan and scholar of myths. And so he was deeply read in Norse myths, in Irish myths, in Greek and Latin literature. And so when he was going through his 20s, uh, preparing uh, for his academic career, and then when he started as a part of the faculty at Cambridge, he came into touch with some other people around him who actually were people of faith. And so he started to have conversations with people like J.R.R. Tolkien, and to talk about why they were people of faith. And so one of the things that started to happen around this time is he started to look at the New Testament narratives, the Gospels, the letters of Paul, from the eyes of a scholar. And so as he looked at these narratives, this is what he shares about the conclusion that he was forced to reach. So he says... I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, or else some unknown writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic, realistic narrative. So what does C.S. Lewis mean? So we all know what a novel is. We Hopefully you know, we have a favorite novel. If the novel is well-written, then probably at some point we've a- we actually explicitly ask the question, did this really happen? It's written in a way that is so real. It draws me in. It has details that you know, could, it, could be a real situation. And uh, that's what good fiction does in this day and age. And this. Form of novel of, uh, of of literature was really invented in the 19th century. That this kind of realistic fiction did not exist in ancient literature before this time, and so what C.S. Lewis is basically saying is, as he encountered the New Testament, and as he looked into it through the eyes of a scholar, he was basically dragged kicking and screaming as a scholar to a place of faith. He actually shares um, in his conversion story that he was the most um, dejected and reluctant convert in all of England (laughs) when he came to faith. And so um, there are a whole number of characteristics that basically led C.S. Lewis to this conclusion. And so we'll take a look at some of them. So the first is the goal of these texts is clear in being reportage, in being a historical biography of Jesus's life and death and resurrection. So we, you know we're looking at a passage from the Gospel of Luke. At the very beginning of Luke, Luke is basically saying, this is my whole goal, is reportage, is to accurately convey what Jesus did, what Jesus taught, all the specifics of Jesus's life that are important for someone to be able to rely on it, to understand who Jesus was, and to live life accordingly. He implies that that's the purpose of all these other people that have written as well. That's where we get the other gospels from, Matthew, Mark, and John. And the claim that Luke is making actually matches the dating of the Gospels. So both Christian, non-Christian scholars, they look at the, um, the Gospels, the other New Testament letters, and they basically say, yeah, they fall in a date where this claim could, could be true. So uh, the letters of Paul were written in the late 40s. In the 50s, this is when Paul is going on his missionary journeys, he's writing letters to the churches that he's, he's planting throughout the Roman Empire. That's when the letters are dated to. The gospels would have started Um, being passed down as oral traditions. There's a lot of research around the accuracy of oral tradition, especially around things that are important. So they would have started right after Jesus' death. The apostles, the the disciples are passing on their stories of Jesus in a form that can be remembered. It's supplemented by notes. Eventually, they come together in their finished form in the 70s while the eyewitnesses to Jesus' life are still alive. This is basically what Luke is saying it's exactly what I did. And so when you look at the gospel of Luke, it makes sense that part of what he embeds in the gospel is all these references to people that are known to the community that is receiving the gospel. So for example, he says, well, when Jesus is going to the cross, the cross was carried by Simon of Cyrene and his sons are Rufus and Alexander. Now, When you read through the gospel, it doesn't matter that Simon's sons are Rufus and Alexander. Doesn't add anything to the story at all. So if you're reading it, you can be like, who cares about Rufus and Alexander? Like, what, what relevance do they have to the story? They didn't do anything but Luke puts them in because he's writing to a community that knows Rufus and Alexander. He's saying, "If you have any questions about what happened in this gospel, talk to Rufus and Alexander. Their father was the son of was Simon of Cyrene and they can share they can affirm that what I've written is true. They can share more details about what occurred. These are the eyewitnesses that Luke is talking about in addition to the disciples that were mentioned like Peter and John that really carried the authenticity of the account of Jesus. So that's one piece. Now when you look at the content and the specific content itself, this is the stuff that C.S. Lewis was wrestling with, it becomes even more clear that these accounts are reliable. So in the text that we're looking at, you have this weird thing with a uh, a broiled fish, right? In a in a myth narrative or a legend narrative, you never get this detail, because who cares whether the fish was broiled or fried or fricasseed or pan-fried? Doesn't matter, right? But the reason why this detail is in here is because, you know, one of the disciples said, this is the story that I remember. Remember when Jesus came to us and we weren't sure it was him? We were all freaked out and frightened, and he actually came. He wasn't like, you know, the things that you would expect to see in legends. He wasn't glowing. He wasn't like Captain Marvel with his aura. We couldn't even recognize him until he said, like, touch my hands, feel my side, and actually I'm hungry, and, you know, and what we fed him, we fed him a broiled fish. Like, we fed the Savior and Lord of the universe a broiled fish. Like, this is what they remembered. This is what they wrote down. Uh, What C.S. Lewis is saying is these details don't make it into myth and legend. They make it into accounts that someone is remembering and writing it down with as much accuracy as they possibly can. Now, there's another kind of content that further amplifies this, and this is like the inconvenient stuff that is in the gospel narratives. So, you know, for example, one of the arguments is, you know, these must have been kind of shaped and manipulated by the early church. Well, the problem with that is, the leaders of the early church were the disciples in the story, and in most instances throughout the story, the disciples come across looking like idiots, right? They never understand what Jesus is talking about. They're always in the way. When Jesus is getting arrested, they're all running away in fear and abandoning him. Peter is denying Jesus three times, and one of those times is to a servant girl because he is so afraid. Now, if you were Peter, and you are the leader of the early church, if you aren't 100% absolutely committed to the accuracy of what really happened, don't you think that you're tempted to be like, can we just fudge that one a little bit? You know, this whole denying to a sermon, can't we just leave that out? He's the leader of the early church, right? But they are so committed to making sure that all of the details about Jesus' life are passed down just as they happened because that's the level of seriousness that they take the life of Jesus. Now, the last thing is that all of these things that are trustworthy in the scripture match the historical context of what was going on at that time. So yes, the gospels make a claim that is hard to believe, that Jesus rose from the dead, but they also provide the rationale for a totally unique, amazing historical event, which is the explosive birth of the early church. That in the first 300 years of the church, the church went from essentially a group of, you know, I don't know, 20, 50 or so, mostly illiterate people, to a movement that had converted over 30 million people and had become the leading religion of the entire Roman Empire. They did it without Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, you know, no social media for things to go viral. And it was a movement where virtually all of the disciples who became leaders in the early church were killed for their faith. They were martyred for their faith. And so if somehow it was a fabrication, they would have known it and they were willing to die for what they knew was not true. When you take all of this together, the most reasonable explanation for how to approach the narrative that we have in the Gospels is that they are what they say they are. A historical retelling of what Jesus actually did, what he actually said, and the events of Jesus' life. And the reason why they put it together was so that other people could know it. The eyewitnesses protected it. And ultimately, it takes even more faith to believe that it is not true than it takes to believe that it is true. All right. We're like halfway there, so. All right, so maybe you're like, okay, um, I'm willing to consider that. But we're in the 21st century now. We live in Silicon Valley. What about science, right? I believe in science. I can't believe in God. Science and faith are incompatible, aren't they? I hear that all the time. So I want to tackle this. Uh, We don't often have a chance to tackle it inside of a church context. Um, I I do come to this in a slightly different perspective than most pastors. Uh, Not only do I really like science, I spent most of my life inside a scientific worldview. Um, I have my bachelor's and master's degree in electrical engineering from Stanford. I was a National Science Foundation graduate fellow. Um, I published two academic papers in applied physics letters. So, no all that just to say, I, I want to claim at least a little bit of credibility to attacking this issue of science and faith. Um, now, the reality is, I've been a pastor for the last 15 years, and I'm not a practicing scientist. So it's really important for me to get this section right. How do we evaluate the claims that science makes? Now, so two things that I did as I engaged. First, um, just want to say that on the one hand, it should be obvious that there's no intrinsic conflict between science and faith, because there really are leading scientists who are people of faith. And you know it could be a long list, maybe it doesn't really matter how long the list is, but just one example, and I use it because it comes from a little bit of a different perspective than what I'll be talking about, is Francis Collins, who, is, uh, who led the Human Genome Project. He's the director of the National Institutes of Health for the last 10 years. Uh, it, Aside, I grew up about 10 minutes away from NIH, my mom worked there, so, um, you know, props to NIH. So, and the interesting thing about Francis Collins was that he was an atheist for most of his life. Uh, he came to faith as an adult, as a practicing scientist, and what I actually appreciate, and one of the things that most remarkable, is that he was a good friend of, um, of Christopher Hitchens and you know some of you may know christopher hitchens is you know one of the has been one of the leading atheist writers of the last 20 years before he passed and uh, christopher hitchens called uh, francis collins a great man one of the most devout men that he'd ever met and he described their friendship as the greatest armed truths of the modern age because they had such different views about god so and I mostly mention Francis because he's written a lot about science and faith from the side of genetics. And, um, and so if you're interested in that, you can basically capture his name and, um, and find his books and do some more reading. So I really want to talk to someone, though, who is engaged in science as a practicing scientist um, and who has thought deeply about matters of faith. So. Uh, I have a friend uh, who used to be a part of our community. He's now a, a tenure-track physics professor at Pepperdine University, specializing in theoretical particle physics, so he literally is studying like the origins of the universe. His name is Casa Betra. Um, he was a part of our community when he was getting his PhD at Stanford, and he was teaching there um, in physics. Incidentally, his wife is also a theoretical physicist, so they are quite a couple. Um, So I asked Kasa, how does his faith as a follower of Jesus coexist with his vocation as a physicist? So um, this is what Kasa said. I thought it was very helpful. So the first thing that he said was, you know, he loves science. He loves pursuing science. He feels like science gives him a better understanding of our world, Um, of the world as God created it. Science is great at explaining how questions, how does one thing happen. Um, And he says that there is a particular domain that really is the domain of science. Science is the domain of things that are testable, repeatable, and falsifiable which basically means you can have an idea about something, you design an experiment to test whether the idea is true or not, you get data from that experiment, and that gives you information about whether or not your original hypothesis was correct or incorrect. And if you did your experiment right, anyone else can do that same experiment, get the same data, and you can actually confirm, is this true, is this false? This is fundamentally how science works. Um, one of the things that Casa wrestled through is, well, what does that mean about some of the things that we find in scripture that are like the miracles? You know, what does it mean about Jesus's claim rising from the dead? Is that fundamentally like impossible because of science? And what Casa basically said was, by definition, a miracle is a one-time non-repeatable event. That's what a miracle is. The reason why we call it a miracle when we're not just using hyperbole is it is a one-time, non-repeatable event where something has intervened and something that fundamentally would not normally occur has occurred. And so what Casa says is, um, as a scientist, he knows the limitations of science He knows the claims that science can evaluate or can't evaluate, so he is totally comfortable as a person of faith with believing that miracles are possible, and it's simply outside the domain of science to evaluate one way or another. Now, this may not be totally satisfying to some people, but just to say, you know, for those who say, well, I believe in science, so that's, you know, that's how I live my life, the reality is all of us believe in things that science cannot prove in one way or another. Right um, There are all sorts of things that cannot be testable, repeatable and falsifiable. You may believe that you know who your grandfather is. You may even have interactions with him. Science may even contribute to that belief, because maybe it's possible to take like a DNA test. Oh, we share DNA. But science cannot prove that your grandfather does not have an identical twin brother who was actually your grandfather, right? It's, it's not a test and an experiment that you can run over and over again. If you are making a decision around, should I marry this person? That's not a question that science can answer for you. <laughs> but you have, to make, you have to believe it or not believe it and make a decision about it no matter what, right? Science is never gonna tell you the answer to say yes, that question. And yet we still make decisions like that all the time. So even in the domain of science, we can arrive at a place where it takes at least as much faith to not believe in God as it takes to believe. And this is one area that I just want to share a little bit about, um, and it's called like the fine-tuning of the universe. Over the last 20 to 30 years, and this is an area that virtually every theoretical physicist has spent tons of time working on whether you know you're a physicist that has personal faith convictions or not this is one of the biggest issues in physics because there's an overwhelming amount of evidence that for some reason there are all kinds of fundamental constants in our universe that are conducive to life conducive to galaxies forming conducive to something being here rather than nothing being here and it's very hard to justify why that is. There's nothing that causes the constants to be what they are. They just are. So these are things like our fundamental forces, gravity, the electromagnetic force, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, things like the cosmological constant. So you can look these up if you really want to know what they're all about. They're things like Holding atoms together, radioactivities, the weak nuclear force, the cosmological constant affects whether the universe is expanding or contracting. But um, what CasA and and virtually every physicist would say, is if you just take it on its face, the odds of having a universe with particular constants that make anything possible, galaxies possible, life possible, that have carbon-based life forms, anything, is infinitesimally small. And it's not infinitesimally small like you buy a lottery ticket and maybe you'll win. It's infinitesimally small like You take all the grains of sand in every beach, and every desert, in the entire world, and there is one set of preconditions and constants that actually is conducive to life. And either you choose that, and you have a universe like ours that has life, or in every other situation, you end up with nothing. Nothing exists. There's no reason why anything needs to exist. But something does exist. The sun is shining outside today. The trees are standing and they're beautiful and there's order and complexity in their creation. One of the things that I found most interesting is, you know, Francis Collins, when he describes his own journey of faith, he studies a lot of this. And ultimately, he says the moment that he came to faith was on a hike when he saw a frozen waterfall that. And just the sense of beauty from something in nature just struck him. And at that moment, he decided that he believed that there was a God. Now, there are other options. People, you know, the scientists are saying, it doesn't, you can't prove that it has to be from God, that there's something rather than nothing, and that we are alive. So some of the options are: um, if, the, if it's an infinitesimally small probability that there's something rather than nothing, and there's you know we're in the universe that we are. Well, maybe it's because there is an infinitely many universes. There are multiverses that there are universes, it, you know, all over the place, trillions and trillions, an infinite number of them, and they have all kinds of different starting conditions. And we just happen to live in the one that is conducive to life. So it's like we won this giant, grand cosmic lottery, but it's just statistics. It's not something that you know was an, is, is an accident of statistics. It wasn't something that wasn't had intention behind it. The other major theory that is actually quite popular these days is that everything that we know is actually a simulation. That well, seriously, it's because life is so infinitesimally unlikely, consciousness, our consciousness, is so unlikely that it's actually far more likely that none of this is real. We're in some giant virtual reality uh, program that you and I are actually bits of very well-tuned, artificially intelligent code. So, you know, you always wanted to be a coder. You are, you're code. Um, You didn't know it. Um, and, and, And that's actually the reality that we live in. And all of these are just trying to explain how could it be that something so unlikely is our experience of this world that we live in. And, you know, on some level, did God create it? Is it, you know, an infinite number of universes? Are we all in a simulation? Science actually can't prove or falsify any one of those. But if you're believing if you have any kind of belief about why we're here, or not here, you're actually making a leap of faith. And let me just say, at least from my vantage point and plenty of other scientists who are people of faith, it takes as least, at least as much faith to not believe in God as it does to believe in God, right? All right, so where does that leave us? Ultimately, I think when, we, when it comes down to when we make a decision of faith or what we believe, I think it ultimately comes down to what we actually experience in our daily lives, what, what our life is really like, what kind of lives we choose to live, what makes sense to us in the lives that we engage in. One of the best-selling books in the last few years, uh, one of the most moving books I've ever read, is a book entitled When Breath Becomes Air by a doctor named Paul Kalanithi. And Paul was really one of the most promising young neurosurgeons in the country. He actually practiced right down the road um, at Stanford until he was diagnosed with cancer in his mid-30s, and uh, he sadly died uh, two years after that in March of 2015. This book, When Breath Becomes Air, is his memoir, uh, his description of the experience um, of cancer as a neurosurgeon. Now, interestingly, like C.S. Lewis, uh, Paul grew up in a Christian family. By the time he was in his, you know, kind of late teens and twenties, he decided that there was no way that there could be a God. Um, He uh, was a firm atheist. Um, He was absolutely sure that that was true. And Paul's route back to a person of faith. He ended up worshiping actually just right down the road at Trinity Presbyterian Church in San Bruno. I have a friend who's a pastor there. Um, But his journey of of returning to faith actually came through uh, philosophy. He was deeply engaged with philosophy. And when he thought deeply about what kind of life is actually worth living? What is my real experience of life? this is the conclusion that he came to. So he says in the book, the problem, however, eventually becomes evident. To make science the arbiter of metaphysics, which is what is true and what is not true, is to banish not only God from the world, but also love, hate, meaning, to consider a world that is self-evidently not the world we live in. What Paul is basically saying is essentially what every philosopher serious philosopher in the last 250 years has said so these are philosophers like Nietzsche and Sartre and Camus they basically said if there is no god if this world is all there is it's just material it's you know the only rules are the rules of science then it is impossible to justify that there is a- any actual source of real meaning or purpose or morality, truth in this universe, that there's no foundation for it that applies beyond this is just what one person thinks and this is just what another person thinks. Now just to be clear, in such a world it's possible for people to have moral feelings Like, we can have preferences about, I prefer to live like this. I prefer to be a good person. I prefer to treat people well. I prefer to believe that all people are equal, that everyone has value. But those just become one person's preferences. And there's no way that you can have those preferences, but you can justify that those preferences are fundamentally more right or more absolute or more real then someone else's preferences to be a genocidal maniac, to take advantage of people, every opportunity they can, to you know, be someone like you know, Jeffrey Epstein in the news, who's this sociopathic, serial predator of people that he has more power over. Because the challenge is, you know, when you look at the world just as it is, when you look at nature, the only rule of nature is if you're strong enough you can do it and if we are no different if there is no creator if god does not call us to something different then we're just animals too and why would we have different rules than any other animal and in a material world the reality is we came out out of an accident that at some point everyone dies the universe winds down to nothing it has no meaning or purpose. So why would anything that anyone does actually have any meaning or purpose in the midst of this world? And you know, this is the challenge that the philosophers run into a brick wall with. Nietzsche, Sartre, Camus. They, you know, this is the primary struggle of meaning that philosophers have no answer for. And it's also the conclusion that you get with the other options of science, right? Multiverse, infinite number of universes. We're just one tiny speck that got lucky. So why does ours matter? It doesn't. Simulation, right? It's all just pretend in virtual reality. It's like we're playing a giant computer game. So why does anything that we do matter? But here's the thing. None of us actually believe that. None of us live that way. When we're at our best, we believe that there is a right and wrong. We teach our kids that. We try to live that way. We believe that there's a difference between telling the truth and telling a lie. We believe that it actually matters when you care about people other than yourself, that there's a value for caring for the poor, for having compassion, for expressing love in your life, that it makes a difference, that it's real, that it's true. We believe that there is something that is in, an intrinsic miracle and value around a human life. We feel it when we hold a child in our hands. I feel that miracle when I had my two daughters. We believe that life has meaning and purpose. We live that way. And whether we are people of faith or not, let me just say one of the reasons why we believe that is because of the person of Jesus. Now, the reality is many of the world religions will emphasize virtue in general. But only in the Christian faith did God so radically love this world that he gave his one and only son to unconditionally love each and every single person in the world, to pursue them with an invitation of relationship, to take the cost of every source of brokenness and sin upon himself, to pay that price of justice, and to reach out in extravagant love and pursuit of humanity and it's that heart of god it's that love of god that has been poured out into this world that has changed the world changed our institutions that give us the gives us the virtues that we have that makes it real when we makes it real that it is good when we strive to love one another so all i'm saying is if you already believe that and try to live that way then why not have a whole life and so that the things, the way that you actually try to live, the ways that you actually try to live matches up and aligns with what you believe. That's the invitation to belief that God gives, to say, if you believe in me as a creator and believe that I am a God of love and believe that I have sent my son Jesus, then you will also have the reassurance and belief. That no matter what comes your way, I'm going to have the last word on pain and suffering in your life. That evil, when you encounter it, will be real evil, but that God is really good and is working to overturn that and to redeem that in this world because he started that process with his son. And you can believe that and live that life with that kind of integrity between your actions and your beliefs. And that's the invitation that God gives us today. And so when we start that way let me just say that you know the foundation of our faith ultimately won't be philosophy it won't be science ultimately it'll be god showing up in our everyday lives that you know for many of us here we can attest you know the reason why we believe these things don't prevent us from believing because there's good reason that they don't have to be obstacles but ultimately why we believe is that god has showed up in our everyday lives that when we needed God and cried out, that, that God was there. You know, for me, part of my story is you know, when I was struggling with shame and guilt and some patterns of behavior that I brought with me out of adolescence, ultimately God showed up in my life, and I experienced real freedom, and that God, I experienced grace and forgiveness from God. I experienced uh, a, a setting free from shame and guilt that I couldn't find anywhere else, and that's a part of my personal story and why I believe. And if we take that first step of belief in God, God shows up in our lives and gives us those personal reasons to believe.